I'm Steve. And I'm Nigel. And welcome back to Making A Happen. Today we thought we'd share a bonus podcast with you. It all started when I asked Nigel what the difference between reciprocity and a symbiotic relationship was. It starts a bit abruptly, doesn't it, Nigel? It does, but we'll hope you forgive us this time. Another thing I was going to talk to you about, which is reciprocity. That was my point. You can't, you can't steal my point. Well, no, but, but I wanted to ask you about it. <laughs> Go on. Because you've talked about it quite a lot. Blown away by the idea of reciprocity. I'm still listening to Braiding Sweetgrass. It's still making me cry every morning. And the stories that she tells are just so emotional. And... and I wanted to understand the difference between reciprocity and a symbiotic relationship. Because it struck me that in the forest, there's a symbiotic relationship between the trees and the mycelium because they can't really get by without each other. Yeah. Whereas reciprocity is more about a collective group of people doing something together for everybody's benefit, but they don't need to do it together to survive. I don't know. Maybe reciprocity is about intent symbiotic relationship maybe implies that there's no intent in there it just sort of happens i i I don't know i need to think about it it just struck me that reciprocity is a really interesting thing and i'm very interested in pursuing it but in the forest i was trying to figure out where there's reciprocity and whether a symbiotic relationship is also showing reciprocity or it's because it's necessary if you see what i mean i mean the thing about trees and fungi is you know how much free will do they have i don't know where i'm going with this i mean we had this conversation before about whether you think nature is conscious or not and i I would say that it is (laughs) and actually by any definition of conscious i think it it actually is that you know understand consciousness as being aware of yourself and your surroundings and then if you look at the kind of things that trees do is that they send food to their neighbours and their their offspring that are further away in the forest. And they also, if they're attacked, they release chemicals and things into the air so that their neighbours are warned. I mean, that that would, those kind of things imply to me or, you know, are taken to imply that they are conscious. I mean, I I have a slightly, probably more woo-woo kind of uh, idea about these things than you do. But um, You and Prince Charles, you know, talks to plants, right? So clearly he believes that they've got some kind of a, that they think that there's some sort of a, consciousness going on there that that makes sense well, i mean interesting you say that because braiding sweetgrass is about is like uh, mixing up or combining native american wisdom with modern scientific understanding because the writer is a scientist but she's also native american so she's trying to understand things from different points of view she she there's one thing that you know there's a couple of examples of things that, she, that really struck me she was talking about um black ash trees and across america they were noticing that uh, there was a problem with black ash trees. That there was a good population of mature trees and there were a good population of saplings, but there weren't very many black ash trees in the middle. They were worried that the population of black ash trees would decline because the saplings weren't making it into, uh, into adulthood and they, weren't, they didn't know why. And they thought it was maybe because indigenous tribespeople uh, who were basket makers were cutting trees down and using them to make their baskets. And they thought this was the reason why the trees were declining. But what they actually discovered is that where basket makers were living, black ash trees were thriving. And where there were no basket makers, then they weren't. They were all dying off. And what, yeah. in what they discovered is that the basket makers, they were using this principle of the honourable harvest. So they would go and choose 
a tree and not wipe out the whole lot, they would take a few. And by taking a few trees, they would open up space in the canopy, then light would get in, and then the saplings could live. Now, the thing is that the way the indigenous people decide which tree to take is they ask the tree if it's okay. And if the tree says no, they don't take it. Or if they see, I mean, you know, on a more mon, sort of less woo-woo kind of way, they look in the tree and they see if there are birds nesting there or they see if the tree's being used and then they, you know, or it's thriving, they don't take it. But they definitely, there is something that you, you know, there is, <laughs> feeling slightly embarrassed about talking about this, but um, <laughs> there is something about having a conversation with plants and you do get something back it doesn't come back as words it comes back as images or a feeling or something there is something there definitely okay i'm not disagreeing with you Um, okay i just had to say that (laughs) (laughs) i did a little bit of investigating about uh reciprocity and i was looking up what it was when you talk about social psychology so there's a chap called fukuyama who's investigated it on it and he says if the institutions of democracy and capitalism are to work properly they must coexist within certain pre-modern cultural habits that ensure their proper function he goes on to say law contract and economic rationality and prosperity must must as well be leaven with reciprocity moral obligation and duty towards community and trust the latter are not anachronisms in a modern society, but rather the sin quo non of the, I don't, I'm not a big Latin fan, uh, of the latter success. But I think basically what he's saying is that underlying everything, there's like a trust and relationship that has to be there to make it work. And so reciprocity moves right from where, you, where you're talking about it in terms of quite a, a conceptual kind of application of how nature's working right into the heart of the economic activities and challenges that we've been talking well, about. Well, I was thinking about this because I was talking to, to a friend of mine about this and, you know, I was saying, wouldn't it be great if our economy was based on reciprocity? And he said, well, it is, you know, we pay each other for something. But I think what's missing from that is what's called externalities and the fact that, the the whole economy is based on nature actually and that we don't factor that in so when indigenous people harvest something they don't take all of it because they know that if you want to have some next year that you've got to allow enough for the population to survive and you could see that in a spiritual way you could just see that in a practical way but you know we don't do that we just you know if we go and see something we just take all of it so it might be that the way that the economy works in itself and how it's constructed the the function of it is is okay but the aims with which we set out to use it aren't so the reason we take everything is because we're we're bent on growth yeah if we weren't bent on growth maybe the economy would work i don't know it's an interesting question i mean the other thing if we were bent on growth why wouldn't we consider that we need to feed the thing that we're taking in order for there to be growth i mean so i don't completely accept that but I I, i i forgot the first word that i should have said which is short term right okay yes yeah yeah but if you this is why i think i i find reciprocity so exciting because i think if you if you brought in the concept of reciprocity um it's, that might start another... to change something about the relationship because it is about relationships isn't it i think what was in, interesting about my black ash story also is that i don't know if you've ever thought about it but it's like what's the point of human beings why are we here on this planet what's our purpose i mean you can look at other things and you can other animals and beings and things and you can say well 
it's kind of clear what they do, but what do we do? And I think if you look at the way, actually, we're an integral part of the system. And if we worked, if we worked with it, like the black with the black ash, that we would help other creatures to thrive. Well, well, I think for um, most of our history on the planet, we did. Right. And it, it's only been uh, the last sort of 150 years with the Industrial Revolution and right. that we suddenly stopped because right. our population grew so much. So I think that's a, a really important point. But moving back to the idea of reciprocity again for a minute, another really interesting example that I'm picking up on today is all this stuff about proof of having your vaccination yeah. and the idea that you would have to have a card to be able to go yeah. anywhere to prove you've had your vaccination. And it goes right to the heart of the whole concept of how medical relationships work. And yet suddenly, when it comes to COVID now, the idea that we should take responsibility for making sure that we're vaccinated so that other people don't get ill is taken away from us. And we're now going to have to produce evidence that we have done it to everybody. And so the whole, so the reciprocity works really, is, is like trust and reciprocity and medical treatment and all those things is really important. And if you take it away, it totally changes the tone of how it works. I have another take on all of this. I think this whole vaccination thing and this whole um, passport thing, it's, it's going really to the heart of how we view health and how we view treating health. I was talking with a friend and I'm not exactly an anti-vaxxer, but I, you know, I'm cautious about all of this stuff because I, because I think, you know, for, for most of human history, for, th- for millennia, we didn't have these kind of medicines that we, we thrived in nature and we, we found plants and things that helped us to be well. And that, you know, with the, with the advent of modern medicine, that whole system has been completely poo-pooed and is now viewed as quackery. Whereas the idea of taking chemicals <laughs> as an intervention is the accepted theory. But I, I'm not convinced that that is the right way to support health. And, and I think it's, it is intimately connected with the health of the planet as well. And something else just to, you know, to, to follow on from this is like, and you know, and it's about systems thinking and it's about seeing the body as a system and seeing the planet as a system. And I, I uh, something I've been doing, I've started doing Theory U, I talked to you about it. Um, yeah. Something they talk about is that the way that we try and solve things is with with kind of single issue departments and ministries and, and NGOs that, that see an issue, they set up a department, right, we're going to fix this specific issue. And then because they're not looking at the whole system thing or how things are connected, it actually makes the problem worse. Yeah. It makes everything worse. And, and I'm, you know, the way that we're dealing with COVID is it appears to be exactly the same, that we're just treating it as a single issue. Well, Don't get I mean, me started on this. <laughs> I, won't, I, won't, I won't go into that in detail, but I mean, I think from a more scientific take on stuff, a lot of the cures that are now chemically manufactured originally were discovered in nature. Yes, they are. It. But they've and, taken out, when you get something in nature, like dandelion contains a lot of potassium. Mm-hmm. And if you have, um, is it heart medicine, I think? that something you have to take potassium because you lose a lot it makes you um what's the word when something makes you weed there's a diuretic yeah some medicine is a diuretic and so you need to take potassium to replenish it thing is that if you take it in its natural form like in from dandelion it's a diuretic but it has potassium in it and it's sort of like nature has all these things in the right balance the way that big pharma works well, I'm not on that but you know i think it's about greed really you know it's at the heart of it and, and reciprocity is the opposite of greed, really. So you, you think that the creation of penicillin was about greed rather than about uh, saving people? Uh, no, I don't think the creation of, but the selling of it. 
what what these big pharmaceutical companies are doing with patenting and you know the way that they sell things and you know their arguments you know even probably shouldn't be talking about this because i don't think i've thought it through properly but i'm not discounting that can you know uh, medicines and pharmaceuticals are you know work and you know are needed in certain situations but i don't necessarily want to poo-poo the whole kind of idea that nature is actually designed for us to thrive and that we can find our medicine in the wild and isn't that going to be more beneficial to take something that's completely natural than to take a chemical that's been refined and turned into something which isn't really good for our bodies well uh, okay i mean i I think the flaw that i heard in what you just said is that there's too many of us but we've just become so successful at reproducing that we're overpopulating our planet i mean that's Mm. really what's going on at the heart of all this and our big challenge is how how are we going to survive because the other thing is that we're we're very good at adapting and developing new ways of surviving because survival is the classic thing that every mammal wants to do well, and as a result of that we're we're getting into a place where we do these things which may not be the right thing to do but we do them because we're driven by that that kind of underlying animal instinct, in my opinion. And then that translates into quicker, faster growth, which results in all the other problems that we're talking about. So the whole whole thing, there's too many people. Now I've seen wow. analysis. Just let me finish. I've seen analysis that says we could probably survive with nine point five or ten million people on the planet. And we're at around what, seven point eight million a billion, sorry, at the moment. So that's ten 10 billion, give or take, it's possible we could survive. But beyond that, I think that's impossible. And the rate we're going, we're not going to make that. No, which is why maybe Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have got the right idea and they're trying to work out ways to get people off the planet. Yeah, but that's still, that's about people surviving, right? Well, if you're well, bacteria... What are you suggesting? Or, I mean, you know, if climate change is the planet's solution to the problem of, you know, human beings uh, just out of control, then... then <laughs> it's goodbye <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know that's well, not I mean, pop- that's not a popular theory put it that way what happened to the roman empire what happened to the roman empire yeah yeah but we're talking about the whole of humanity i mean we're not talking about just one one but, civilization but at that time they were the dominant component i mean if you read uh, sapiens or sapiens i don't know if you read that but he talks about uh you know other other um humans uh like neanderthals that, yeah. that basically we wiped them all out because we were just really really good at organizing that's right and we we stuck together in groups rather than trying to operate individually we had reciprocity i think that's what happened because <laughs> we realized collaboration was better than individuals but it's it, that's a really interesting challenge that we're faced with i think um and I can't quite remember how we got here, to be honest. I, I, know, but I also noticing that we've been talking for longer than we said we were going to. <laughs>